0: Jim, appreciate it, brother. Gordon just said that if I catch him texting during my message, it's only because he doesn't want to fall asleep. And uh, I'm reminded that uh, the disciples fell asleep during the transfiguration, and Jesus was there, so I'm in good company. Right, Gordon? Actually, I assume if you're, you're on your phone, I figure you're live tweeting the salient points from this morning's message. That must be what's going on. (laughs) How many of you remember a moment something like this? You have the parent and you have the child. You may remember this as being a parent. You may remember this as being a child. You may remember it both. But you're getting ready to do something or you're getting ready to go somewhere. And the child has a lot of questions about where you're going or maybe a lot of questions about what it is that you're going to be doing. Now, it can be pretty cute sometimes, huh? Little kids and their questions, right? But after a while, let's admit it, it can also be quite annoying when every statement that a parent makes is followed by, Why, Mommy? Or, Why, Daddy? Why? 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 And again and again, no matter what you say, no matter how you answer that question, the question is, Why? But of course, as a good parent, you dutifully answer these questions for your child again and again. As best you can, you explain in a language that they can understand. But eventually, what happens? The child wears the parent down. Eventually, the parent has to say to little Johnny or Susie, well, you'll just have to trust me. You'll just have to trust me. And of course, this doesn't always end the questioning. The next question may be the same as the first 25 times, but why? Nevertheless, the parent means for, the parent hopes for the response that they just gave. You'll just have to trust me. They hope for that to be the end of the questioning. The parent, at this point, has given all the information that the child needs to know, at least what they need to know now, or all the information the child can understand, or maybe a little bit of both. Now, if the parent gave a fuller explanation with many things, the child probably wouldn't understand anyway. The parent is older, after all, right? The parent knows more. The parent is wiser, at least hopefully, than the child. There's really only so much that a child needs to know. They don't need to know everything, do they? Do our kids need to know everything? Of course not. The parent understands enough and knows enough for the child to trust the parent and for the parent to take good care of the child. We are inquisitive beings. We want to know more. We want to understand more. And we see that from when we're little bitty kids, right? And we see that even as we grow up into adulthood. And that can be a good thing. The desire to know more, to understand, to learn has led to advances that ancient man could not even have imagined. The desire to explore, for example, the desire to get to the bottom of things and understand how things work, it's improved our lives in ways that we can't begin to count this morning. I believe this is a God-given trait, actually. I think that because we are made in the image and likeness of God, We have an innate desire to create. And to do that, we have to understand the way things work. We have to know more fully. We have to explore. Of course, God does know fully in a way that we never can and we never will. He's the creator. He's the maker of the universe, and he's the author of time itself. If we, as Christians, understand and believe that God knows all and he sees all, and is sovereign over all, then he knows and understands everything there is to know and everything there is to understand. That's foundational to our belief in our great God that we serve. He knows the end from the beginning. That is, he knows what's going to happen next, today, tomorrow, a year from now, a decade from now, and on and on. He knows the quote from this sermon that Gordon is going to live tweet to a Twitter audience around the world. He created the heavens and the earth. He lives in eternity where those of us who are in Christ will live with him someday. He knows what eternity is like because that's his home, even though he interacts with us in time. He's already there. He's already on the other side of what for us is death. He also knows when he is going to bring down the final curtain at the end of days, the end of time as we currently know and we currently understand time. Now these things alone are awesome For us to ponder the very fact that God knows and understands these things and made them the way they are the greatness and the majesty of the mighty God we serve the unfathomable mercy and grace he extends to his creatures and the love it took for him to redeem us and make us the saints of God the way he made the universe his amazing plan for our redemption but you know what folks. There is a downside to us for this need that we have to know more, this need to explore things to the very end. Now, it's not wrong in and of itself, and, of course, rightly directed toward knowing Christ. Again, this innate need that we have to know and to understand and to explore can be a good thing. But there are times, there are times when we need to be told, and, in fact, we are told, in His Word, essentially You'll just have to trust me, just like the parent with the child. And that's where the Word of God and some of the challenging things in our faith sometimes collide and create problems for us. Now, this problem is as old as humanity. We can go back to Adam and Eve and see that this innate need to know, while it is, in fact, I believe, God-given, can be corrupted and can lead to sin. Unfortunately, we find very many examples in the Word of God, of how our Bible has been demoted. It's not the final authority. We see that in our culture. We see that sometimes, if we're honest, even in ourselves. It's not enough for many Christians. The Bible is not enough for many Christians to live their lives of faith anymore. We know that it truly is, but we know that that's how sometimes people think, trusting God with what he's told us and accepting that as sufficient. In other words, You'll just have to trust me. We see it in the story, for example, of Adam and Eve. We remember that in Genesis 2, God gave the garden to Adam and Eve to use and to manage. And the only limit that God placed on Adam was eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He and Eve, Adam and Eve, had everything else they needed. God was their provider. It was paradise, literally. But it wasn't enough. Why? Why wasn't it enough? We read and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now there's so much here in this passage of what we call the fall that we could explore this morning. But let's restrict ourselves to the theme today. The serpent, which we now know as the enemy of our souls, the temper tempter that we still deal with to this day, what did he do? He questioned God's word. He tempted Eve to believe that God's word wasn't sufficient It wasn't enough. Did God really say was his first question, questioning the word of God. And then when Eve clarified, and in her clarification, already exhibiting a misunderstanding of what God said when she added the phrase, neither shall you touch it, the serpent once more questioned God's word, this time even more directly, challenging it, even contradicting it, saying, you will not surely die, said the serpent. The serpent not only directly contradicts what God has said, but goes on to present this tree of life, the fruit of this tree, as something worth, the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as something worth obtaining. By eating it, the first humans will be like God, knowing good and evil. So let's consider for a moment the irony here of the serpent's statements. The serpent, for example, has not been made in the image of God, but Adam and Eve were. Did you ever think about that? In an important way, Adam and Eve were already like God. Being like God, they were charged by God himself with exercising authority over all the beasts of the field. And what was the serpent? The serpent was a beast of the field. Now, we know it was inhabited, used by Satan, okay? But the beast of the field should have included the serpent. But instead, what happened? Adam and Eve obeyed the serpent, and in doing so, they betrayed God. Those who were meant to govern the earth on God's behalf instead rebel against their divine king and obey one of his creatures. What a thing. They obey one of his creatures. What's more, they Adam and Eve here in the passage we just read are the very first illustration of what we're looking at this morning. God's word was not enough. Instead of trusting God, Instead of trusting what he had already said, instead of believing what he had already spoken, and being satisfied with that, that his word, in fact, was sufficient, they let their inquisitive nature overcome them, and it turned to pride. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, we read God's original commandment to them. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it you shall surely die. That's all that God told them about this tree. He didn't provide every detail. He didn't explain to them that this was a spiritual death to be followed eventually by a physical death. He didn't explain how these consequences would work themselves out, the consequences of disobeying God, of not listening to his word. And not just in their own lives. He surely didn't explain the tragic consequences uh, that this would have for all of humanity to follow them. He didn't explain to them that this act of disobedience would in fact cost God the Father the very life of his son, Jesus Christ. Nor did he tell them how all of this fit into his amazing grace plan of redemption. Adam and Eve didn't know any of that. All they knew was what God said. But God wanted what he told Adam and Eve to be enough for them. He wanted Adam and Eve to trust him. And he'd proven he was trustworthy, didn't he? Look at all he provided for Adam and Eve. He wanted Adam and Eve to think something like this. Well, if God told us not to eat of this because we will die if we eat this, that's good enough for me. I choose to trust God's word to us. It's sufficient. It's all that I need. I think that's what God wanted. From Adam and Eve. That's just obedience, basically. It's just obedience. Again, thinking of the opening analogy of the parent and the child. Suppose that exchange that we talked about, where we were talking about all these questions and answers, always followed by another why questioned by the child. Suppose that just happened to be about the stovetop. Daddy says, Don't touch the stove or you'll burn yourself. Why? says little Johnny and it goes on from there with explanations of what burning is right how it will hurt how it will damage johnny's skin how it will probably make johnny cry how it might mean a trip to the doctor or to the hospital how long it'll take to heal etc 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 and little johnny keeps asking why 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 but eventually dad's worn out by johnny's questions and he says you'll have to trust me on this johnny don't touch the stove because it will burn you trust me It'll burn you. But later, Johnny touches the stove because he thinks maybe, I don't know, what does he think? I want to know what burning feels like. I mean, why does a little kid touch the stove when mommy and daddy say it's not a wise thing to do? And Johnny finds out what burning is, doesn't he? And it isn't pleasant. So Adam and Eve's eyes were indeed opened. They learned. They learned about good and evil from experience. But now they are guilty and they know it. That's why they had to cover themselves. They were guilty, and they knew it. Their sense of guilt makes them afraid to meet God. They have become slaves to evil, and while they do not cease to exist physically, they are expelled from the garden sanctuary and God's presence. Cut off from the source of life and the tree of life, they are in the realm of the dead. Why, or what they experience outside of Eden is not life as God intended, but spiritual death. The disastrous consequences of Adam's sin cannot be overemphasized, resulting in the fall of mankind, the beginning of every kind of sin, suffering, and pain, as well as physical and spiritual death for the human race. But for this morning's purposes, this account reveals something. It reveals our innate pride that can result from the need to know more than we need to know. The need to know more than what God has told us. When he doesn't tell us all we want to know or all we think we need to know. We want to be like God and we want to know everything. It's kind of the idea that if we just understood more, then we could obey. Then we could have peace. Then we could trust. Just explain it to me, God. Just explain it to me. And then I'll trust you. But sometimes God tells us just to trust him. Even when, maybe even especially when, we don't see or know everything that there is to know. He wants us to trust him because of who he is, because of his character, because of his promises in Christ, because of his grace and mercy that, hey, if we're in Christ, it's already evident in our lives. All these things are found in who he has revealed himself to be in his word. His word, our Bible, what do we call it? We call it the word of God. That's because it's his word to us, his revelation of himself, his revelation of his acts in history and his character. It's just as clear God's word to us, this Bible that we carry around with us, is just as real to us as God's word to Adam and Eve, don't eat from this tree. When we trust his word, when we allow his word to be sufficient, even when we want to or feel the need to know more, we're trusting him. We're trusting him because these are the very words of God. This book is an instrument to reveal to us all we need to know for our faith and for the daily practice of our faith. Yet we see many examples in our lives and in our world where it seems the word is not enough for believers. Now, we don't expect the word to be enough for unbelievers, right? We're talking about those who are in Christ. That's most of us, maybe all of us, here this morning. We see these examples. God has told us some things, but he's clearly told us all we need to know. But sometimes it's not enough for our innate need to know And understand more. And again, that's a good thing if we want to know God more, if we want to understand more of Him. But we must learn to trust Him in those areas where He has already told us everything we absolutely need to know. When we go beyond what His Word reveals, we're often treading on thin ice even dangerous ground, because it can cause us to, kind of like a snowball rolling downhill, begin to question more and more of his revelation of himself and his plans and his purposes and his promises to us and end up right where the serpent was in tempting Eve. Did God really say? Do you see how this can happen? I thought of several examples of this in our culture and even in my own life. And though there are no doubt many more than the couple I'm going to mention here this morning, I want to focus on a few that seem clear to me. Hopefully, they'll be just as clear to you. Now, I want to warn you, I'm going to step on some toes here because I'm going to mention some things that probably some of you have read or looked at and maybe embraced in some way, okay? So I'm going to warn you that in hopes that you'll stick with me and hear me out, okay? One thing where it seems that many Christians think the word of God is insufficient, is illustrated by what some people have called heaven tourism. Has anybody ever heard that phrase? It's interesting, not a one of you have heard that phrase. There's a movie released just, I'm sure all of you know what I'm talking about, and you'll see it here in a second. There's a movie released just last month called 90 Minutes in Heaven. It's based on a book by a preacher who supposedly died in a car accident and spent about 90 minutes in heaven and came back to tell his story. There's a book and a movie based on the book called Heaven is for Real about a young boy who supposedly died and went to heaven and then tells his story. There are many others we could cite. There's many others. In fact, this has become a cottage industry, hence the idea that somebody, I don't know who coined the phrase, heaven tourism. Been to heaven, had a great time, you'll want to go too. Now, without necessarily questioning the sincerity of bringing these accounts, And without delving deeply into the validity of these stories, we're going to delve into that a little bit, but in other words, are they real? Let's again stick with the theme here this morning, the sufficiency of Scripture. I've not read any of these books, I have to confess. So, Bill, what do you know? Okay. But I have read excerpts, and I have read reviews, and one of the things that's true of some but not all of these books is the emphasis on seeing your loved ones who've gone before you. But the Apostle Paul, the God-inspired writer of so much of the New Testament, who, according to his own account, has been to heaven, and by the way, he didn't have to die first to go there, Paul wasn't compelled to tell people about what he saw. Paul didn't have a book deal or a movie deal, so he could spread his account of what heaven was like. In fact, he was essentially forbidden. Not only did he not want to, he was forbidden to spread his account to tell of these revelations about heaven. And he was even given some sort of physical ailment to keep him from getting proud about what he'd been so privileged to see firsthand. So this same Apostle Paul, who has in fact seen heaven, wrote this, Therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. The emphasis here that Paul is making is that we live by faith and not by sight. I think you could probably add to that by somebody else's experience. The emphasis is on being home with the Lord. Paul also wrote in Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So there's nothing wrong with the wonderful reality that we will be reunited with our loved ones who died in Christ Jesus before us. I think uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.17 begins to attest to that truth. It says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. In other words, those who've died before us in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be. We will always be with the Lord. So that's true, folks. We will be with our loved ones in eternity. But even there in this passage of Scripture, we see that we're together with them, that is, those who died before us. But the emphasis on the word is always, always, always being with the Lord, our blessed Redeemer. Because why? That is far better as Paul writes, than anything else we can even imagine. So in our finite human minds, yes, we imagine the wondrous reality of being reunited with those who've gone before us. And that's okay. That's a good thing to think about. But what is the emphasis in Scripture? It's being with the Lord. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. With me is what he said. Not with these people that you knew who died in the Lord. With me. That's the most glorious thing about heaven, folks. And I know there's so much more, but is that enough for us? Is it enough for us that we will be with Christ? Is that enough for us? Do we need to know the rest of the details? Do we need to know what it looks like? Do we need to know how big of a mansion we will have? Or is the Word of God sufficient? Is the Word of God sufficient? Is what God tells us in His Word sufficient? Is it enough? One writer did a study of hundreds of accounts of near-death experiences, or NDEs, okay? And there have been hundreds of accounts through the years in which people told stories of their time in heaven. And there were many common threads in these hundreds of stories, even though many of these accounts were not even supposedly from Christians. One common element is that many but not all of these people became more universalistic in their faith after this experience, In other words, their stories convince them everyone goes to heaven. Heaven's a good place because I've been there, I've seen it, so you have nothing to fear. That was the emphasis in their story. Another conclusion after reviewing these stories is that with the variety of religious ideas that are contained in these experiences, this is a quote from this study, we will be provided with the heaven that is right for each of us. Anybody see anything wrong with that statement? NDE studies seem to show that each person gets the heaven they want. One theologian writing about these heaven tourism experiences wrote this, and and pay careful attention to this passage here. A very serious issue arises for anyone who cares about how Christians determine what Christians are to believe about heaven and NDEs. That's near-death experiences. In other words, if many Christians, the numbers who buy NDE books, the numbers who go to this movie believe a story like Don Piper's 90 Minutes in Heaven because it confirms their faith, a faith that comes from the Bible, then they are only believing what the Bible says and don't need the NDE story. In which case, let's focus more on the Bible and bring the discussion back to what the Bible clearly teaches. But we can turn this around slightly and we can look at it from a different angle. If many Christians disbelieve elements of many NDE stories because they don't cohere with the Bible, and the elements that don't cohere with the Bible are legion, then they don't need the stories either. In which case, where are we? We're right back where we started. Let's focus on what the Bible teaches and not on what the NDEs suggest. In other words, keeping with our theme this morning, let's say that what the Word teaches is enough. It's enough for us. It's sufficient. It has all we need to know about heaven, and we don't need anything else to prove it or to enhance it. It's good enough, folks. It's amazing as it is in the word. Why do we need anything else? One writer referring in part to the story from Heaven is for Real wrote this. If God's word is not sufficient for you, if the testimony of his spirit given to believers is not enough for you, you will not find any true hope in the unproven tales of a child. This hope may last for a moment, but it will not sustain you. It will not bless you in those times when hope is waning and when times are hard. Only the Word can do that, folks. Only the Word can sustain us when life is difficult, when times are hard. Another thing that illustrates our innate need to know more is the end times. Eschatology is the fancy theological word for the study of the end times. And this, too, is a cottage industry. We all want to know how it will end, don't we? There are endless books and magazines and TV and radio programs with so-called prophetic insights about what the current events mean, who the Antichrist might actually be. I've heard that referred to as pin the tail on the Antichrist. (laughs) When will the rapture take place and when will Jesus return? So the latest speculation has been about these blood moons that we just had. The last blood moon was just last weekend, and it was part of a tetrad. And apparently that's pretty significant. That's when you have four blood moons in a relatively short period of time. Some preachers and authors are are speculating that this is really significant, that this signals the beginning of the end or the rapture. But here's the thing, folks. Think about this. These speculations are being fueled by astronomical data, not by what's in the Word of God. When we read about the moon turning to blood, and we do, We read that in Scripture. We read it in Joel 2. We read it in Acts 2. We read it in Revelation 6. But think about this. Don't you think that these events will be way more spectacular than an everyday common, relatively common at least, lunar eclipse, one that can now be predicted by scientists with absolute certainty? When when you heard about the, the eclipse last week, they told you the moment it was going to begin, and they told you the moment it was going to end. This is a kind of event that's already occurred many times in history. Scripture tells us about the second coming of the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 36, But concerning that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And in Acts 1, 7, we read again the words of Jesus. It is not for you to know, Does that sound like what the parent just said to the child? Trust me. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. What's more, the Bible's emphasis is way different than knowing when this stuff's going to happen, isn't it? It's on our heart's preparation, our heart's being ready for his return, not knowing when these things will happen. Listen to this passage. This is kind of a long passage, and if you have your Bibles, you may even want to turn there. It's uh, 2 Peter chapter 3 beginning with verse 10 because this is key to this particular issue and it touches very much on the sufficiency of scripture as well it says but the day of the lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed since all of these things are thus to be dissolved what sort of people ought you to be in the li- in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and heavenly bodies will melt as they burn but according to his promise we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells therefore beloved since you are waiting for these be diligent to figure out when it comes because you really need to know when all this is coming wait a minute, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them, it speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. Do you see what we're getting at here, folks? You see what we're getting at here? You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So again, we see here, our emphasis is on the sufficiency of scripture it's enough it's enough for us folks it tells us what we need to know and paul even uh, i'm sorry peter even warns of the danger of taking beyond what has written already not that the return of the lord jesus to take his bride the church home forever is not an important doctrine folks it is it's a core belief he's coming back folks he's coming back We read in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And when he, Jesus, had said these things, and as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. Into heaven. We don't need to speculate beyond what the Word tells us. The Word of God is sufficient. You know, it's sufficient in a lot of other things, too. It's sufficient when we suffer. Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus says, I will be with you always. Job never learned what was going on in the heavenlies when he experienced his long list of sufferings. God just said to Job, I'm God and you're not. Trust me. That was the essence of what God said to Job. He never had a clue. You know, I'm sure he wanted to explore. His friends certainly did that were giving him advice. They wanted to explore beyond, here's why this is happening. When we trust in his word, when we believe that what God has revealed about our faith and his character and his plans and his purposes are enough, we are believing God himself, and we are trusting in him, even as we trust in his word. The key passage here is is Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, where it tells us all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is a passage that clearly outlines the doctrine of the sufficiency of, of scripture. It's enough. Uh, the ESV study Bible tells us that equipped for every good work, that uh, passage there, it says in a broad sense, this includes everything that God calls a believer to do, but in a specific sense, this also supports the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. That is the idea that the truth contained in Scripture is sufficient in all matters pertaining to doctrine and moral behavior. Although there are no commands outside the Bible that apply to all of God's people, this does not exclude individual guidance by the Holy Spirit on how to apply the universal commands of Scripture in particular situations. So even folks, when we say, well, you know, I don't, I, I, maybe, you know, and I've heard people say this. Uh, nobody here, I don't think. Well, I don't need the word so much. I'm led by the Spirit. Well, that's a mistake, even when we're led by the Spirit, and we see that from this passage. We're encouraged to be led by the Spirit, actually. It's only an application of already revealed truth. In other words, Scripture is still sufficient. Even when you're led by the Spirit, Scripture is still sufficient because God the Holy Spirit will never contradict God's words as revealed to us in Scripture. And if they do, then they're not God's words, and you're not being led by the Spirit. So it's also important for us to understand what the sufficiency of Scripture is not. The Bible has nothing to say about how to use PowerPoints in a sermon. I look for it, folks. It's not there. The Bible includes no instructions on how to build the cars that we all came to church in this morning. We cannot find in the Bible a recipe for my wife's spaghetti sauce, though it might be good for all Christians to have that. The Bible doesn't tell me what job to take. The Bible doesn't tell me who to marry, but the Bible does give me principles about work and about marriage and about serving him, principles that can guide me and guide all of us in those and other important decisions in our lives. So the Reformation principle of sola scriptura, you may have heard those words, does not mean as it is often caricatured by non-Protestant Christians that the only authority is the Bible in the individual Christian. It means instead that the only final authority is the prophetic apostolic word in the writings of Scripture. So folks, the Bible doesn't contain everything there is to know. Google might, but the Bible doesn't. But it does contain everything we need to know about how to be saved, about how to live a godly life in Christ about who God is, about his character, about his promises, about his work in human redemptive history. And when we, in our innate need to know, go beyond the word in the arena of our faith and practice, we are, in fact, on shaky ground. But we are able to say, folks, we can say, as believers in Christ, with his Holy Spirit inside of us, we can say, God, I don't fully understand about some of these things. But I do know and I do understand what your word declares about things like death. I do know and I do understand enough about what the word says about your return. I do know and I do understand enough about what the word declares about my suffering. And about many other spiritual things that we don't even have time to get into this morning. And those truths are enough for me. They're sufficient it's enough. Your word is sufficient, we can say to God. Your word is sufficient for me to know you and to know your love and your grace and your mercy and your character. It's sufficient for me to follow you. It's sufficient for me to love you. It's sufficient for me to serve you with my whole heart. And we can also say, I look forward to eternity when my work will be to glorify you as you reveal so many of these things that I wonder and think about today but cannot fully understand. Isn't that a wonderful thing to consider? That part of our purpose in eternity will be learning about these things that we can't fully fathom now. These things that we want to say, but why, Daddy? But why? Amen. Amen? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful that you did not leave us here without any understanding of the things that we need to know. And, Father, we do pray that you would help all of us to trust in you, trust in your word, your revealed word, that shows us so much about who you are, about your character, about your promises, about your purposes, but doesn't show us everything there is to know. Lord, give us the gift of faith that we can trust in you. Give us the gift of faith that we can trust that what you've given us in your word is sufficient for us to know, And help us to rest in that, Father. Help us to rest in that when we don't understand everything there is to know. Help us to determine those things that are different, too, Father. We want to know you. We want to know you, and we want to understand you more. So, Father, we do pray that your Spirit would enliven and enrich Scripture in our hearts and in our minds so that we could indeed know you more and more and understand more and more of you, Lord God. But about those things that you've chosen to tell us only so much, but no more, we want to rest in you and trust in your character, just as the child uh, should trust the parent, Lord, that the parent knows everything there is to know about a subject and knows what's best for the child. And uh, the parent desires for the child to say, I trust you, Daddy. I trust you. So we thank you for these truths, Lord, and we pray that you'd help us to rest in you As we look to your word, you've given us so much in your word, Father. It's such a rich, rich thing in our lives. May it continue to be that as we seek to follow you and serve you all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.